Michael O'Hickey was born in Carrigan-Shore on the 12th of March 1861. He was educated at the Christian Brothers Schools at a private secondary school in Carrick and at St John's College, Waterford. In 1884 he was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Waterford and assigned to the Scottish Mission in the Diocese of Galloway. He served in Scotland for nine years, working in different parishes. In 1893, he returned to Walford and after a year as curate in the parish of Kill, was appointed diocesan inspector of schools. In 1896, he applied for the vacant chair of Irish at Maynooth. He had at the time the support of the ailing former professor Owen O'Growney, on Tahir Padar O'Leara, Owen MacNeil, Douglas Hyde and others. There were five other candidates, but O'Hickey was a unanimous choice. O'Hickey came to the college as a committed nationalist and a fervent Gaelic revivalist, well known for his writings and articles in the Irish-Ireland papers of the time. He was a man of strong character, integrity and honesty, but proud and headstrong, with an unwillingness to compromise on anything he considered important. On his appointment, he continued to write and speak on all questions of Gaelic culture and language on which he had a view. The number of students studying Irish increased remarkably. His character and temperament, however, soon brought him into conflict with Dr Mannix, the president of the college. On the other hand, the same qualities won for him the lifelong friendship of the college's most radical, colourful and controversial professor, Dr Walter MacDonald. MacDonald, professor of theology, was at the time an advocate of such revolutionary proposals as the entry of Catholics into Trinity, involvement of the laity in the management of schools, free and open competition in appointments to the staff, and the abolition of Latin as a teaching medium. He was a legendary figure. His theological work on motion was condemned and referred to Rome. All his writings and speeches were suspect, and he was regarded as a dangerous and subversive figure. MacDonald was, in fact, a fine intellectual, whose thinking was far in advance of his time. He held a view that the Irish hierarchy of the time were primarily concerned with consolidating and advancing their own powers, and not with the good of the church as a whole. O'Hickey's clash with the trustees of Manute came about in the following manner. The National University was established in 1908 under the Universities Act. Soon afterwards, the Gaelic League took up a position on the necessity of compulsory Irish for the new university. Father William Delaney, a senator of the National University, and President of the Catholic University College opposed this view in a speech in November 1908. Dr O'Hickey and many others believed rightly that this also was the view of a majority of the university senators, amongst whom were five clerical senators, including Dr Mannix. He felt, in the circumstances, that he had to take a stand in the hope, amongst other things, of influencing the minds of the bishops. This he did in a number of strongly worded letters and in a lecture to the students, subsequently published as An Irish University or Else. This was published on the 19th of December, the day the Episcopal Standing Committee met and issued a statement on the university question, opposing compulsory Irish. On the 30th, the Bishop of Waterford wrote to O'Hickey, telling him that his advocacy of compulsory Irish and the strong language used to state his case was resented by the Standing Committee. He replied to this, promising not to intervene further in the controversy, but denying that he had done anything wrong or that the language he used was intemperate. This letter of reply was seen as a further act of insolence and insubordination. 
On Sunday, June 20th, O'Hickey was cited to appear before the visitors of Maynooth. Present were the Cardinal, two Archbishops and four Bishops. The Cardinal began by affirming that O'Hickey had every right to speak his views on the Irish question. Then he read from a college statute dealing with the necessity for professors to give good example to students. Finally, he commented on the Irish University pamphlet and on O'Hickey's unfortunate choice of words. The Bishop of Galway read a number of extracts which they found offensive, they said. One passage they took particular exception to was where writing of the clerical centres, he said, with the exception of the Archbishop of Dublin, the others I recommend to your earnest prayers, and elsewhere, where he compared his opponents to Judas, who sold his God. Undoubtedly, the language was strong and polemical, an expression of the man's character. When the passages were read, Cardinal Logue invited him to make a statement. He said that he had indeed written what had been read, that he believed he was justified in writing it, and was sorry to see that their lordships were offended. He then left the boardroom. All this caused great excitement and speculation in the college. On Tuesday, June 22nd, the trustees, the governing body of Maynooth, met. About an hour later, O'Hickey had a visit from the Bishop of Waterford. Dr O'Hickey, I want to speak to you. I hope you will accept my assurance that nothing could possibly be more disagreeable or more painful to me. But I have to ask you, will you take a mission in the Diocese of Waterford? No, my lord, not while I am a professor in Maynooth. If at any time I should cease to hold this position, then I am in your lordship's hands. If you don't take a mission, you will be called upon to resign. I shall certainly refuse to resign, my lord. I owe that to my character, my kindred, and to Ireland. Nor can I acquiesce in what I shall be obliged to regard as gross injustice. If you refuse to resign, you shall certainly have to be deprived of the chair. Then I shall have to be deprived of it, my lord. Do you think you're quite wise in that, uh, from the uh, point of view of your interests? For one in my position, it is not easy to decide what is wise or unwise. But as to what is my duty, I am clear. I must be dismissed. Dismissal in such circumstances I shall regard as no dishonour. A hardship, but not a dishonour. Your lordship can therefore say I will not resign, and you can say further that if dismissed, I shall publish a statement to vindicate my character. Within half an hour, he was once more summoned to the boardroom. The visitor's report was read for him. Cardinal Logue told him that a resolution depriving him of his chair was before the meeting, and had been agreed on, though not adopted. Again, he was asked if he wished to make a statement, and once more he said that he had nothing to say other than he had written the writings complained of as a duty to himself and to Ireland. He then left the college to stay with friends in Dublin. He was never to return to Maynooth again. 65A Upper Leeson Street, Dublin, 30th of the 6th, 1909. My dear brother, I have now dispatched my reply to their Lordship's resolution calling for my resignation under penalty of dismissal. I have sent it under registered cover to the Secretary to the Trustees. It is being printed, and as soon as the printing is done, I shall send copies to their Lordships. When they read this, I do not think they will be altogether at ease. In due course you will get a copy, but you must treat it as quite private. 
Having decided to contest their action as far as a priest may legally and with propriety do so, I must guard against making mistakes. The main point for present consideration is that I have refused to resign. The next step must therefore be taken by their lordships. When they will or can take it, it is not possible at present to tell. They may not be able to proceed further till their next meeting in October. I am looking out for the Irish Ireland papers tomorrow. I hope they will not play into their lordships' hands by coarse abuse or threats, or by saying anything disrespectful of them personally or of their office. But it is hard at all times to control them and keep them upon the proper lines. I have got friends to speak to them, for I have at present to lie low myself, but I fear it is not much use. The Nationalist daily papers have been acting the whipped cur in great style. They would not touch it for anything, and are keeping all reported matter out of their column as far as possible. God bless you all. Your loving brother, M.P. O'Hickey. At the very beginning of the affair, O'Hickey had gone to MacDonald to seek his help and advice. Towards the middle of July, he received notice from Monsignor O'Donnell that the trustees would meet to deal with his case on Thursday, the 29th of that month. And in acknowledging receipt of this notice, he in turn notified the trustees, through their secretary, that he should consider himself aggrieved by dismissal. I am advised, he proceeded, that as the grievance in question will result from an act which is not one of ecclesiastical jurisdiction, I shall be authorised by the canon law to seek a remedy in the civil courts. He went on to ask permission to take this action in case he was dismissed. To this, the trustees replied, in the act whereby the dismissal was formally completed, that the statement in his letter as to the dismissal of a professor from an ecclesiastical college not being an act of ecclesiastical jurisdiction is altogether erroneous, and that as regards permission to proceed in the secular courts, they had no authority to grant it, as in the case of action taken against bishops, such permission is reserved to the Holy See. As I am responsible for the legal advice on which Dr. O'Hickey wrote this letter, which, if I do not mistake, was drafted by me, I may say now that I still adhere to the opinion and advice I gave, especially as to the act of dismissal not being one of ecclesiastical jurisdiction or ecclesiastical authority of any kind. Such authority resides only in an ecclesiastical personage, while the personage that acted in this case was the body known as the trustees of St. Patrick's College, Maynooth, who were not, and are not, as far as I know, an ecclesiastical corporation in any sense of the word. On Thursday, the 24th of June, a statement appeared in the Irish Times saying that O'Hickey had resigned his post. He denied this in a letter to the papers. Then, on the 29th of July, 1909, the actual dismissal took place. Within the college and outside, both the President and the bishops were subjected to criticism. That their lordships themselves and their most loyal supporters among the clergy were not at ease as to the proportion of offence to punishment would appear from two circumstances well known to all who, like us at Maynooth, were in the way of knowing what was being said in defence of the action of the trustees. Some of the most influential of the bishops themselves excused them on the ground that the actual infliction of so severe a punishment was really due to Dr O'Hickey's obstinacy. They didn't mean to dismiss him, but only to warn and frighten him and so to make him apologise. And they felt it bad of him that he would not climb down, so that they might be relieved of the painful necessity in which they had placed themselves. One archbishop complained that Dr O'Hickey did not come to him, as had he done so, 
everything would be easily made right. To the others he was poor Dr. O'Hickey, a foolish and obstinate man, whose worst offence would seem to have been that he did not get things arranged by that method of compromise that is so dear to the superior Irish clergyman. They did not mean to dismiss him for that offence. They did not think it would ever come to actual dismissal. They actually dismissed him because they had threatened to do so, and he would not apologise. O'Hickey and MacDonald were a formidable pair in their own way, the one passionate and fiery, the other calculating and objective. Following the dismissal, they drafted a long and detailed statement outlining O'Hickey's case. This was lost for many years, but was found in 1974 and is now in the hands of the Carrigan-Shure bibliophile, Hugh Ryan. As we've already seen, from the beginning, they had decided to contest the legality of the dismissal. Almost from the beginning of the proceedings taken against him, when he saw that the trustees were bent on dismissing Dr. O'Hickey, I advised him to appeal to the Holy See. He naturally had some difficulty in making up his mind to do this, principally on the ground of expense, as also because he did not think there was much chance of success in an appeal taken against an act not of any single bishop, but of a whole national hierarchy. I was more hopeful, as regards success, on the ground that his case would go before the re-established rota, which, if it was at all like the old Roman tribunal of that name, would examine the case judicially and do justice between the parties. As regards expense, the issue was quite simple. Are these speeches and letters, of which we admit the authorship, an offence so grave as to justify the penalty of dismissal from an office such as that of a professor in our college? This, I thought, should be decided within a few months. I persuaded him to go to Rome with a view, one, to get a legal opinion as to whether he should proceed in the secular courts in Ireland, and two, in case he was advised that he could not, to get the rota to accept his appeal. I had confidence in the rota then, but have not now. Would you say that O'Hickey, to some extent, has some of the qualities of the classical uh, Greek tragic figure? Oh, yes, very much so. Because um, he had this tremendous hubris. He, he thought he could beat the bishops, evidently. Or shall I put it another way, that he would, that the bishops would come half ways to meet him and would make some kind of a settlement with him. And here he was driven on by, by cruel fate, by this hubris, driven to his by, by to, to, to the fate that he faced. An outsider still within the church, as it were still very much an outsider. Everything he did for the best, as in the best in, in the Greek tragedy, turned out for the worst. Anything he did to try and better his ladders or promote his favourite uh, favorite ideal, or his ideal, it, it, it rebounded on him and helped to destroy him. And therefore, <laughs> very much a tragic figure in the classically Greek tragedy, I call it. Well, having made up our minds to go to Rome for legal advice and possibly for justice, we set about preparations, Dr. O'Hickey drawing up a statement of facts supported by elementary evidence, while I formulated three questions to be submitted to certain Roman lawyers with a view to obtaining their opinion of the case. The result of my labours was a pamphlet of 30 pages written in Latin so that it could be read at Rome, wherein I discussed giving the evidence on both sides as fully and impartially as possible, one whether Dr. O'Hickey was at liberty to proceed against the trustees in the secular courts of Ireland, two, whether he had a right of appeal to the rota at Rome, and three, 
whether the act whereby he was dismissed by the trustees was to be regarded as valid. The lawyers, whom Dr. O'Hickey consulted, answered the first two questions in the negative, but they all expressed surprise at the punishment that had been inflicted and gave good hope that the act of the trustees would either be declared invalid or annulled. The case was referred to the Rota by a special act of the Pope, and the trustees were cited to appear about the middle of June 1910. O'Hickey prepared to set off for Rome. My dear father and mother, nothing made me so cheerful this morning in reading your letter than to know that the lads will soon be done with the whooping cough. Every day during the consecration, I say a few prayers for the lads, and not ever forgetting to pray for you and my mother. Tell my mother that I say a few prayers also for my uncle Michael, and now that he is going away to plead an upright and just cause, I won't forget him, and I hope that you won't either. We don't know how earnestly he prayed for us when we were in difficulties, and now it's our turn to show our gratitude. May God grant him every success, as I'm sure he will, for he stood for a cause noble and honourable, and did what he did, con gloria dei uxenor in herum. From your loving son, Thomas P. O'Hickey. Hotel Victoria, Venice. 21st of the 2nd, 1910. My dear brother, here I am. I arrived last evening at 7 and, of course, did nothing but get something to eat and get to bed. I was out this morning for a preliminary canter to get a general notion of my bearings, but I was completely baffled. There are no streets in Venice, only canals, and as a rule, there are no keys. The houses rise sheer from the water's edge, hence what they call streets, things like Ball Alley Lane, of which the number is infinite, completely baffle you. If you were prepared to pay infinite francs for gondolas, you could get on fine. Hotel Washington, Florence, 26th of the 2nd, 1910. My dear brother, I am starting for Rome. I have had two very full and pleasant days here. It is a beautiful city, and no mistake. Not quite so entrancing as Venice, which of course is unique, but still very, very beautiful. The galleries here are marvellous. It took me a whole day to walk leisurely through the Uffizi Gallery from 10 to 3, as long as it was open, and over two hours through the Pith Gallery. Then there are half a dozen smaller galleries. Really, Italy is marvellous. Ascoltate. San Carlo, Frascati, Rome, 9th of the 9th, 1910. I really wish I were home, and this whole business determined one way or another. I am beginning to weary of it. But of course, I do not mean to imply that I have any intention of relaxing any efforts to bring it to a successful issue. The long suspense is beginning to make one sick at best, and then the constant strain is terrible and the future all uncertain. Keeping your expenses in every possible way, money goes at the rate of about £10 a month, £8 for bare living, and nothing coming on. There is an official of one of the Roman congregations staying here, Monsignor Joris. He has been here now for a month. I have had many conversations with him. In one I told him all about the case, as clearly as my Italian would permit he must know the mind of the curia very well, and he thinks the acts of the trustees cannot be sustained. 
he seems genuinely astonished at their whole proceedings, indeed contemptuous and almost incredulous. I hope he is right, and that his attitude is fairly representative of the general official attitude in Rome, and especially in the Rota. The selection of Tum for this mission to Rome seems to have caused considerable hilarity in such quarters in Ireland as I am at all in touch with. I am considerably fortunate in that selection at all events. Dr MacDonald must now be in Maynooth. He was due there on the 5th, so he wrote to me before leaving Tremor. He should be able to pick up some news when the stuff is all assembled, for they have been dispersed far and wide since Rome, and must have heard all that there is to hear in clerical and even episcopal circles. I shall probably hear from him in a few days. One charge which was made against Dr Rohicki was so dishonourable and false as to deserve special mention here. It was that he had been wont to reveal to the press the secrets of the college. This was the President's most poisoned shaft. College secrets, he swore, those especially that regarded provisions made for the teaching of Irish, had been revealed to the press. This had been going on for years and had ceased when Dr Rohicki left the college, from which the conclusion was plain that he was the traitor. Now, if there was one priest in Ireland more incapable than any other of dishonourable conduct, it was Dr Ohickey, whom even his opponents regard as being as honourable as he was fearless and unselfish, hence the peculiar venom of this odious charge. One piece of evidence which was put in to prove this charge of disloyalty against Dr Ohickey is too good to be passed over, showing as it does the animus that was against him and the kind of proof the judge delegate thought it right to admit. The Bishop of Galway, Dr O'Dee, swore that when Dr O'Hickey was appointed professor, it was his, Dr O'Dee's, duty as vice-president to make inquiries as to his character. So he sounded a prudent priest of the Diocese of Waterford, to which Dr O'Hickey belonged, and learned from him that the secrets of the diocese had been revealed of late, and that Dr O'Hickey was suspected of having made the revelation. That was part of the tragedy, the comedy being, for those who knew the Irish Church, that Waterford or any other diocese in Ireland should be said to have any secrets that Dr O'Hickey or any man like him would care to reveal. Monsignor O'Riordan has been on a visit of some days' duration to the Bishop of Waterford, who was not at the October meeting. And as Monsignor O'Riordan is not a special friend of his, and has not, I think, stayed with him on any former occasion, this visit seems to be especially connected with the case. What I suspect is that on his own initiative, or at the suggestion of others, Monsignor O'Riordan went to Waterford for the purpose of meeting with the bishop to endeavour to get me to withdraw, or for the purpose of sounding him as to the chances of a settlement. In any case, his mission is futile. I don't want compensation, and I will not touch a settlement. What I want is a legal decision and my vindication. I may be beaten, of course, but I should prefer defeat and freedom of action to compromise. That is all the news I have since I last wrote to you. My dear brother, I saw Advocate on Saturday. Here is what he told me. One, the documents have not yet been delivered, but the court is now to be set in motion to compel their delivery. Two, the trustees merely replied to them that they would see about the matter. They proceeded to see about it. How? They have spent the whole summer moving heaven and earth to get the Pope to withdraw the pontifical commission by which the case was sent to the Rota for trial. In other words, to get the case taken out of the Rota. 
Well, they have failed, so he tells me. The case is to come up tomorrow for arrangement for preliminary hearing and for the fixing of a date for the hearing. Three, I can have witnesses cited if I wish, but if cited, they must be formally examined, either by appearing personally in Rome or in Ireland by a judge delegated to take their evidence. Of course, if any persons wish to send me testimonials voluntarily, they can do so, but there is no hope of this. They are all afraid to volunteer. I have called for time to consider and take advice as to whether I wish witnesses cited. The expense frightens me, and I do not wish to face it unless witnesses be deemed necessary. Our colleagues, as we found, were afraid to assist us, lest they should interfere with their own future. If, indeed, they regarded Dr. Hickey as guilty of an offence which deserved the punishment he received, they would be cleared of the charge of selfishness, cowardice and disloyalty to the public weal of the college. I regret to say, however, that though most of them did not speak openly, there was hardly one outside the President and his immediate entourage who did not regard the penalty as harsh and excessive, and that if they did not stand by their dismissed colleague, it was because they were afraid. The fact is that, as far as I could see, the staff as a body thought Dr. O'Hickey unjustly treated, and if they refused to aid him, it was because they were selfish and afraid. If witnesses are cited, a list of questions to be put to them, which Advocate and myself will draw up, will be sent to the delegate judge, who is to have their answers taken down and properly certified. The Advocate is very confident. He laughs at all their bluster and threats, and seems much amused. He thinks he is in a position to meet them, no matter what time this takes. The fact that they have left no stone unturned to get the case withdrawn from the rota shows that they are afraid, thoroughly afraid. They have no case in law. I knew there was something up when I heard what they had been saying. I did not, however, hit off their designs accurately. I thought they would try to intimidate the tribunal, but instead this brought all their resources to bear upon the Pope. His Holiness has declined to oblige them, so now they must make the best defence they can. Collegio Maronita Piazza de Pietro, in Vincoli, 8, Roma, 19th of the 12th, 1910. My dear brother, I wish Katie, the children and yourself a very happy Christmas and New Year. I enclose a trifle to help make Christmas Day enjoyable. 20 shillings for Katie and yourself, 5 shillings for Thomas, 2 shillings for Molly and 1 shilling each for the others. Get a postal order for 2 and 4 pence and enclose it in envelope sent herewith to Brown and Nolan. I do not want to have any bills standing against me, particularly at present. MacDonald had always held that the statute on which O'Hickey had been impeached had never been promulgated. O'Hickey's advocate demanded a copy of this, a copy of the resolution whereby his client was appointed to the chair of Irish, and the minutes of the proceedings of both the visitors and the trustees. These documents were very slow in coming. Collegio Maranita, Rome, 5th of the 3rd, 1911. My dear brother, there is no further news since my last. We are still awaiting reply of trustees to the mandate of the rota for delivery of documents. Advocate undertook to notify me of their reply. He has not yet done so, so no reply can have yet been received. I believe that, in accordance with the dilatory policy they have all along pursued, the documents will not be forthcoming until they are demanded under penalties within a specified number of days. A mandate of that sort must soon be arranged if the documents are not received at an early date. While Dr O'Hickey was pressing in vain for the documents bearing on this case, 
Rumours were being circulated to his detriment that he had been incompetent as a professor, that he had been insubordinate, arrogant, ill-tempered, disloyal, that in fine he was, as the advocates of the trustees represented him afterwards, an anti-clerical, depending for support on anti-clericals, and who knew how much worse. Was it likely that he would be dismissed from a chair at Maynooth if the bishops did not know something about him, which they could not publish without scandal? His advocate in Rome asked him again and again whether he could get no one in Ireland to write a letter to say that he was a good priest and that he had to admit that he could not, except one or two who, as they were themselves on the blacklist, would do him more harm than good by testifying to his character. Before going to Rome, he had asked testimonial letters of his own bishop, Dr Sheehan, and of the Archbishop of Dublin, in whose diocese Maynooth is situated. But Dr Sheehan, while testifying that he had been an exemplary priest before he went to Maynooth, professed to know nothing of him since then, while Dr Walsh now testified that, as far as he knew, Dr O'Hickey was free from censure and irregularity. It's interesting to notice how, how he defends himself in his statement, the sort of legalistic and abstract distinctions he makes, which, to, to my mind, are, are sort of foreign to the Irish mind, as I understand it. The Irish mind thinks in terms of personalities rather than ideas, as the bishops obviously did. O'Hickey saw nothing uh, illogical in attacking the bishops in their senatorial capacity, for example, uh, without at all attacking them in their, what he called their Episcopal capacity. And this was a perfectly logical and legalistic distinction. In O'Hickey's mind, the bishops didn't see it that way. They were offended. Uh, they were, I think, in the typical Irish caste, uh, intellectual caste, if you like, that, that has difficulty in distinguishing the man from the office that he holds. They were offended. That, in fact, I don't believe they had any real case against the man, against O'Hickey. He simply offended their sense of dignity. There is nothing to tell you about the case. An incidental or interlocutory question of some importance is to be considered on the 28th. That has delayed the fixture for hearing of the case proper. The decision of 28th may further delay it. It may still be decided before the vacation. But every day is now important, and every delay makes final decision before vacation more doubtful. We must be content, and it is well things are getting on so well at home. That is much to be thankful for. And my own affairs never worry me. Only home affairs do so. My dear brother, yesterday morning I received from Sister Brendan a copy of the nationalist Clonmel. I examined it to see if there was anything marked in it, but found nothing. Then I looked through it to see if there was anything which would explain why it had been sent, but I found nothing. Last night I took it up to read some of it, and quite accidentally I stumbled upon a paragraph announcing Molly's death. This morning I had your letter. You can imagine how grieved I am and how my heart goes out to you. It is a severe blow. She is all right, but how those who are left must feel it. Try to bear it in a spirit of resignation to the divine will. God knows best. What he ordains is always best. He is wiser than we are. 
May God strengthen all of you to bear this trial and grant Molly the light and happiness of heaven, as doubtless he has done. The years passed. The case dragged on. There were objections and counter-objections, demands for documents, delays in their arrival. The appointment of judges to hear the testimony of witnesses was an issue of major importance. Monsignor Pryor, one of the auditors of the Rota, an Englishman, was appointed judge instructor by that tribunal. But as such men rarely act in person in cases of this kind, someone had to be found to serve as delegate of his. We suggested the names of three distinguished Irish clergymen resident in England, all of them domestic prelates of His Holiness, and any of whom we thought would make a competent judge delegate. One was Monsignor Tynan of Salford, and it seemed at one time as if he would be appointed, but then, out of tenderness for the feelings of the Irish bishops, Monsignor Pryor, who had business in England during the autumn, said that, when there, he would come over to Ireland, take the evidence, and look personally into the question of the documents, delivery of which had been ordered in vain so often by the court. Anyway, on August the 2nd, 1911, Dr Hickey's advocate wrote to him to say that owing to a protest which has come from the bishops of Ireland against the appointment of an outsider as judge instructor, Monsignor Pryor has nominated as judge instructor delegate Cardinal Logue himself. The last word implies that it was the cardinal who made the protest, acting, of course, for all his colleagues in the Irish episcopate. This is interesting as showing what regard was paid to justice, or even to appearances in this case. Dr O'Hickey sues the trustees of Maynooth College for wrongful dismissal and grave injury to his priestly character, finds witnesses, however so much afraid, who then have to appear before the cardinal, the chief defendant, now judge. The bishops claimed O'Hickey was using delaying tactics. He accused them of the same. March the 21st, 1912, was set for the hearing of the case. The advocates for the trustees asked for a deferral to May. This was granted, and another date was set, May the 21st. O'Hickey's advocate was refusing to proceed with the case on the grounds that he still had not got all the relevant documents. It was required that both sides should present printed statements. O'Hickey's advocate requested a postponement so that this could be done. This was granted. He asked for a second deferral, which again was granted. But when on June 1st he again pleaded failure in having the material printed, the court rejected his plea, and O'Hickey was decreed to have renounced his action. Collegio Maronita, Rome, 20th of the 5th, 1913. My dear brother, Dr Mannix did not come here at all. He said in Maynooth that he was coming, and Monsignor O'Riordan stated here that he was coming without fail, but he did not come nor did the other bishops or Shiel. They could have come here by leaving England when the steamer left, have had a few days here and have caught the steamer easily at Naples. But they sailed from England. This was a complete change of programme. What is the explanation? Some here think plans were changed because I was still in Rome. At all events, it is a strange proceeding for two new bishops who were 10,000 miles away and practically passing Rome not to call and pay their respects to the Holy Father. Monsignor O'Riordan went to Naples to see Dr Mannix and his brother Bishop and give them Godspeed. Dr Hickey remained on in Rome to appeal the decision. Dr Mannix sailed off to Episcopal Office in Australia. 
At the end of May 1914, on the 30th of the month, Dr O'Hickey wrote me that he had signed a memorial drawn up by his advocate wherein the Pope was asked for permission to take the case before the secular tribunals in Ireland on the ground that a hearing had been refused in Rome, though Dr O'Hickey had been pressing for justice since he came there in April 1910, that is, for more than four years. He had no hope, so he wrote me that the memorial would produce any effect but he thought it his duty to present it with a view to completing his case against the Curia. Neither had his advocate any hope of success. What was my surprise then to receive on June 6, three or four days after the letter had come, a telegram to say that the Holy Father had again sent on the case to the Rota. Next day, Dr O'Hickey wrote, giving what little details he had to give, including a copy of a letter from Monsignor Bresson at the Vatican to Monsignor Sebastianelli, Dean of the Auditors of the Rota, who was informed that the Holy Father had, by a quite special grace, arranged to send on the case again to the Rota to be dealt with and decided by that tribunal. Dr O'Hickey, though elated naturally by this pontifical decision, was in doubt as to what he should do in the new circumstances that had arisen. To proceed again in the Rota would cost time and money. Was the chance worth the cost? Had we any chance at all, considering the experience we had of the methods and the mind of the tribunal, Dr. O'Hickey himself thought he had no chance, not the least. His own opinion continued to be in favour of withdrawal, after, however, writing to the Holy Father to thank him for this new favour and to explain why he could not see his way to accept. Nothing remained then but for Dr. O'Hickey to write to the Pope, and as the letter would have to be drafted with the greatest care, he was to take time. Meanwhile, of course, the news had spread in Ireland, and I have no doubt that it was not at all pleasing to their lordships, the trustees. I have no documentary proof that they took action, nor did I hear that they did until somewhere about July 23. I had a letter from Dr O'Hickey to say that the Holy Father had withdrawn the case from the Rota. In the summer of 1916, O'Hickey returned from Rome, where he had been fighting his case for six years. He went to see his old friend, Dr MacDonald. There was very little change in his appearance, a trifle older, perhaps a little more subdued, he seemed to bear his great disappointment well. He had been ill in Rome in the early part of the year, but he was blessed with a great constitution and seemed to have completely shaken off the illness. He stayed to dinner and made a hearty meal, I thought, as he did also later on when he paid me a second visit in the same place. He seemed in very good health. On the occasion of the first visit, I asked had he seen his bishop, Dr Hackett, recently appointed to the See of Waterford. He, Dr O'Hickey, said he had not, had merely sent a line to say he had come home. I said that I thought it was not enough and that it seemed due to the bishop to call on him in person. Dr Hickey then said that when he returned to Ireland, his best clothes were not such that he would like the bishop to see him wear, lest his lordship should take it for a cry of distress. When he got a new suit, as he hoped in a few days, he would call on his lordship. Well, in a few days' time, Dr Hickey, duly apparelled, called on his lordship, who received him kindly. There were inquiries about health, and then, after the usual commonplaces, about Dr O'Hickey's intentions. He had none, except to serve on the mission in any office to which he might be sent. The bishop asked whether he had any special wish, as, for instance, for the town or country mission. Dr O'Hickey had none, would try to fit himself into any place that might be assigned him. The bishop said he had no place vacant just then, but would be on the lookout for something suitable. On a November night in 1916, Dr O'Hickey went for a walk with a priest who had come to visit him. When he returned to his brother's house in Port Law, 
he said he felt ill and went to bed. One morning, towards the end of November, I sat down to breakfast in the college and, opening the paper to find the latest news about the war, read a heading in capitals, Death of Dr. O'Hickey. No one had heard of any illness of his. We knew him to be a man of powerful constitution. I myself had seen him not three months before, apparently in excellent health. And now he was dead. I have been defeated, not because I was wanting in arguments, but because I would not plead before you as you would have liked to hear me plead, or appeal to you with weeping and wailing, or say and do many other things which I maintain are unworthy of me, but which you have been accustomed to from other men. But when I was defending myself, I thought that I ought not to do anything unmanly because of the danger which I ran, and I have not changed my mind now. I would very much rather defend myself as I did and die than as you would have me do and live. 